Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates author interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and today's show is part of our Smithsonian Associates author interview series, and we have an excellent program about food and the power food has to nourish our mind and, importantly, how food supports our emotional health and wellness in profound ways through both nutrients and pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. As I say, we have got a great guest today who, after reading her new book, Eat and Flourish, I've been looking forward for a while to talking to her. I'm going to introduce her in just a moment, but quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 686th episode, and I spoke with National Pickleball Ambassador Nikki Weigel. Two weeks ago, I spoke with Smithsonian Associate Marion Turner about her new book, The Wife of Bath, a biography. Wonderful subjects for our Not Old Better Show audience. If you missed those shows, along with any others, you can go back and check them out with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. And if you leave a review, <laughs> we will read it at the end of each show. So please leave reviews on Apple Podcasts for us. On to today's show. Food has the power to nourish our minds, supporting emotional wellness through both nutrients and pleasure. Our guest today, journalist Mary Beth Albright, will tell us all about this from her new book, Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being. Mary Beth Albright will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please Check out our website for details on Smithsonian Associate Mary Beth Albright and her new presentation, Nourish Your Mental Health. But we have Mary Beth Albright today. Mary Beth Albright will tell us all about the cutting-edge research to explain the connection between food and mood. Mary Beth Albright redefines emotional eating based on science, revealing how eating triggers biological responses that affect humans' emotional states both immediately and long-term, and the complex studies from the new field of nutritional psychology and offer straightforward suggestions for what to eat and how to eat it, all focused on the latest foods, the art and science of how and what to eat for emotional well-being. I adore simple pleasures. They are the last refuge of the complex. Oscar Wilde. Food is pleasurable. We feel joy when we eat, whether it's a juicy peach, crusty bread, or chocolate. And we feel especially uplifted when we're sharing that pleasure with other people. This emotional reaction also shows up physically via brain activity that can be mapped and studied. Sex, great music, and delicious food all activate the same circuitry that lights up to tell you, this feels good. All of the above is just some of what I learned when I found myself lying down inside a tube, motionless, drinking milkshakes, kale juice, and wine through straws while half a dozen scientists watched. Depending on what I ate, the functional MRI, fMRI, scanning my brain showed varying degrees of pleasure parties in my head. As I reviewed the images later, I could literally see how eating something I do a few, okay, maybe several times each day, influences how I experience the world. And if my food choices affect my brain activity so acutely in the moment, then surely there are long-lasting changes too. 
That brain scan was just part of the larger story about how food can improve our emotional well-being. The brain and gut send signals back and forth that affect decisions, relationships, satisfaction, and mental health. These signals depend a lot on the kind and quality of food we eat. And the latest science shows that certain foods are particularly beneficial. My book is about the art and science of what and how to eat for emotional well-being. That is how we react to life's inevitable everyday ups and downs, pressures, and changing relationships. Let's dig in and discover how we can eat and flourish in everyday life. That, of course, is my guest today, Mary Beth Albright, reading from her new book, Eat and Flourish. Mary Beth Albright is a Smithsonian associate, a writer, an editor, and executive producer at The Washington Post. Mary Beth Albright was a project director and subject matter expert for the U.S. Surgeon General and has appeared on the Food Network. Please join me in welcoming Mary Beth Albright, Smithsonian associate, to our program today on radio and podcast. Mary Beth Albright, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Paul. I'm thrilled. I love the Smithsonian Associates, so this is going to be fun. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, I I love the Smithsonian Associates, of course, as a Smithsonian Associate yourself. It's just a thrill for me to get a chance to talk to somebody like you. And this book that you've written, Eat and Flourish, is just wonderful. I'm excited to get into that. I'm really excited to talk about your Smithsonian Associates presentation upcoming here just right around the corner. Let's start there, though. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about your Smithsonian Associates presentation and um, what you're going to be sharing with us there? Well, first of all, I'll say that Carla Hall is going to be the moderator. So to me, that's like a selling point, too. I love Carla Hall. She's amazing. (laughs) She's fantastic. But about, um, about 15 years ago, I was working at the United States Surgeon General's office and on an unrelated topic. And a journal article passed my desk that showed that um, people who eat omega-3 fatty acids uh, actually have lower degrees of aggression when they're angry. And that was the first time I had ever seen anything like this that was peer-reviewed, evidence-based, randomized controlled study. And that was really important to me because I came from a background of public health. I worked for former Surgeon General C. Everett Koop, who was very evidence-based, very much followed the science. And so while I had thought about this like anecdotal idea of food and mood as being entwined for a long time, it was usually just sort of like pushed off to like complementary and alternative medicine, you know, nice to try, but not a first line of defense. But then over the past 15 years, the research has really exploded as this new field called nutritional psychiatry has blossomed. And there is a ton of research right now about um, about how food and mood are entwined and how we can harness that power of food to make our emotional well-being better. Thank you. That That's very helpful. And yes, you just have this amazing background. Um, of course, you, you're a correspondent and editor of the Washington Post. You write about health and science and food and travel. Uh, you're also a public health lawyer. I, I really am um, just so pleased and, and so impressed with all of this experience. And it, and it really comes out in the book. I, I think 
I, I want to I talk a little bit about the book because it, it is getting rave reviews. Again, uh, Mary Beth Albright is our guest. She's written this wonderful new book, Eat and Flourish. We're going to put links so that our audience can find it. Of course, we're talking right around the first of the year with you, Mary Beth Albright, and uh, many in our audience are making New Year's resolutions, including um, fitness commitments, commitments to perhaps some new diets. While your book isn't a cookbook, there are some recipes throughout the book. There's this great index of recipes at the back of the book. You really have this wonderful saying, you know, it's not a fix-yourself diet book either. So what does the book title mean, Eat and Flourish? Maybe tell us a little bit about where you got the idea to, to write this book because it's perfect timing. Well, look, Paul, I have been on many diets in my life um, and gone back and forth with trying to make friends with food, trying to pull away from food. And it it was interesting because I I do have this public health background. And when I started writing about food, I think I, I turned what I perceived as my biggest weakness into my biggest strength which was just a really empowering feeling. And um, and I do believe in the power of range, of, of knowing a lot about different subjects, because one of the um the one of the um scientists I spoke with, Eric Stice, who is a uh, researcher at Stanford University, who I actually drank wine and kale juice and milkshakes with in in an fMRI to see my brain activity. Um, When I was talking to Eric Stice, he said to me, what we really need in the field of nutritional psychiatry and in this whole field about how food affects the brain, what we need is somebody to look at the whole elephant. So you might you might remember that there's an old ancient um, s- story about um, blind people um, touching, blindfolded people touching an elephant mm-hmm. at different points of it. And one person mm-hmm. says, "Oh, it's a tree right. because of the leg," and one other <laughs> says, "Oh, it's you know it's a bush because of the tail and stuff." But nobody can see that it's an elephant because the elephant is so large you can't touch it all at once. So that's what I try to do as a journalist, as a public health person person was to go in, look at all of the science from a lot of different fields, from neuroscience, from something called neurogastronomy, um, from the gut microbiome, a lot of the research going into there, nutrition, all of those things to come up with a handbook that was evidence-based and was practical enough that people could just use it. Because I'm also a single mother, Paul. Like, mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I've got a lot going on. <laughs> and I work mm-hmm. in a busy newsroom, you know? I, I work in a place that is both very busy and very stressful. And so um, I really wanted something that was going to be practical, that was going to be realistic, um, and that was not going to be like, okay, never eat sugar again and you'll be fine, because that <laughs> that's not living in reality. Well, you, you, you mentioned the research, and the research in the book is really impressive. Uh, congratulations on on the book and wonderful job with the research. And um, and I want to talk to you about gastronomy for just a second because I, and, I yeah as, yeah less. people love it. I love it. I think it's so fascinating. It really is. And so so I'll I'll tell you among the many recipes that I that just jumped right out at me uh, because I love. I love apple crisp. I love fruit crisp. You have this wonderful recipe for blueberry crisp. And you say in parentheses, you know, almost any berry crisp. But I want to talk about the research uh, about blueberries and our emotional well-being. Tell us a little bit about that, what you found. 
Sure. Well, there there is um, pretty considerable evidence about blueberries specifically as a food, but also about berries generally because they're very high in fiber, and and the, these little teeny tiny berries um, pack a lot into them. Now, I I when you read the book, you'll see I'm not a fan of fetishizing any one food, of saying like blueberries are a superfood or whatever, because indeed blueberries are a food that packs in uh, more nutrient density per calorie than, you know, a lot of other foods, say a Twinkie, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But, but there are, but it's part of an overall eating pattern. And a lot of times when people hear blueberries are good for your health, they feel like, okay, well now I'm going to eat a pint a day, I guess, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. the kind of overboard thinking that um, people who are working on their emotional well-being as I am every single day, can can fall prey to that sort of all or nothing thinking that actually winds up hurting our emotional well-being and hurting our, our mental health. So the thing about blueberries too is um, it, it, the, the, the recipe that you're referring to was um, for uh, it, it's a it's a crisp recipe that really it's like any blue any berries you have rolling around <laughs> any leftover berries you know any frozen berries you have I make it with frozen berries all the time and I don't even defrost the berries because I like it, 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 sometimes when you're cooking you just want something delicious you want your house to smell great you want it quickly and it's like okay I've got oats I've got some oil and I've got some um, you know, berries, what am I going to do with that? And it's a kind of thing that you can, it's a pantry recipe that you can really make quickly. Um, but yeah, all of the foods that I talk about are part of an overall eating pattern. And one of the most interesting studies in the book, I think is by the American gut project, which is about the gut microbiome, which is, um, the gut microbiome is the trillions of bacteria and viruses and fungi that live between you in your digestive tract. So it's all the way from your mouth to the other end. And um, the, the studies have shown that the most important thing you can do for that gut microbiome, which influences mental health extraordinarily, um, is to eat uh, a diverse diet is to eat as many different kinds of plants every week. It's not just about blueberries, blueberries, blueberries. Um, but although that blueberry crisp is delicious and it will make your house <laughs> smell amazing. And I get into the science of the senses too, about why it's important to have your house smell amazing. We hear about this all the time with like selling your house, have something baking. I mean, why not use that the power of that for ourselves as often as possible? Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with Mary Beth Albright. Mary Beth Albright has written the new book, Eat 
and flourish. It is excellent. Mary Beth Albright will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. Please check out the website for more details on Mary Beth Albright and her work, Nourish Your Mental Health, which will be at the Smithsonian Associates. We will have links of more details about Smithsonian Associates and where you can find out more information about Mary Beth Albright. Well, let's dive into this subject about emotional eating because I think the science as you've proven so so well, so thoroughly, it reveals a great deal about um, about eating and the triggers, the biological responses that that affect our long term mood. I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about some of what you found and um, and what what we should know about this subject with respect to food and emotional eating. Yeah, the the most interesting thing to me was that it's not just about what you eat, but about how you eat. Um, because food and emotions are entwined and we can either get to know that connection between our food and our emotions, or we can deny it and, you know, not use it. Um, and it's still there, but which, oh, I, I'm going to try not to be emotionally eat today. Really the science shows that all eating is emotional eating because when we eat anything, that could be a carrot stick, that could be chocolate, that could be a piece of tuna. Um, our bodies release dopamine and that dopamine helps us bond with other people. And that's why there's something in the book that I call the feast paradox that is about, um, you know, in America, we often think like, oh, the less we eat, the better off we'll be, right? That it's like, um, that eating less is associated with better health. What the feast paradox shows us, and this is documented over and over again, is that people who eat with other people tend to eat more food. That's true. But they also enjoy better health outcomes. And so what is it about that release of dopamine that happens when we eat food that can help us to bond with other people? And I'm not pathologizing eating alone. Eating alone is great. And I love doing, I live alone part of the time. So, so that happens, but I also now make a real effort to go out and eat with other people because I can see that every time we eat anything, there are biological reactions that happen in our body that influence our overall mental health. And, it, you know, the body is more than just a container for parts. It's a system. And the gut and the brain are constantly sending messages back and forth to each other. We see that in all kinds of ways. Um, it, particularly, there, there's, there's this kind of gut sense that the gut tells the brain how much fat you've had or how much sugar you've had. And in a lot of ways, those are the cues for us to stop eating. It's not this sort of diet-based idea of when, when do you feel like you've had enough? You know, that if there's an actual biological association with not that it's not just this like woo woo, like, Oh, you'll be satisfied with less. Right. So, so understanding that about ourselves, I think is the key to getting closer to eating in a way that helps us live our fullest life. Yeah. I, I really like the, uh, the, the reference throughout the book to research and to uh, science-based um, uh, evidence. It, it, it's fascinating. And, and you use this great word, the kind of the woo-woo. Well, the woo-woo certainly is uh, true when it comes to my audience and this idea of isolation and socialization. But here you're saying that there is this great um, scientific proof, this evidence-based uh, research that proves that 
that we really shouldn't be eating alone. We shouldn't be eating alone for a lot of reasons, but being together matters, particularly when it comes to food and our mental well-being. Yes, and it's something, it's surprising to me, given the amount of research that there is that supports eating with other people, it's surprising to me that we don't talk about it more. Because every single time that we um, that, that a survey is taken, and the first ones were taken around World War II, um, right after World War II, when people actually started eating alone more often, um, whether it's in America, whether it's in Great Britain, whether it is in Australia, um, different parts of the world, every Every time we take surveys, the incidence of people eating alone goes up. It just increases every single time. And in this country right now, the current Surgeon General has said we have a loneliness epidemic. And that loneliness can affect our health outcomes um, equal to 10 cigarettes a day. And so, so it, it, and again, I want to say like, I live alone part of the time. It is not always easy. And then sometimes, you know, the, the big joke at Thanksgiving was like, can't eat with knives because people are going to, people are just going to throw the <laughs> knives at each other. At Thanksgiving. So right. I'm, not, I'm not embracing this idea of like, oh, just eat with other people and you'll have a great time. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I understand relationships are complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it's also we we talk a lot about the importance of kids eating family meals and you can see you know better grades and and sexual activity is delayed and that kind of thing i don't know why we don't talk about it more for the benefit of adults because there there is a measurable benefit i get that not everybody has someone to eat with for every single meal but even just increasing that one meal a week right that can have health benefits. I want to read uh, some just some critical praise. Mary Beth Albright makes the compelling case that by understanding food holistically, we can unlock its potential to improve our physical and emotional well-being. That's from Jose Andres, chef and founder of the World Central Kitchen. Just high praise, Mary Beth Albright. So I want to talk to you, just take a little bit of a left turn away from emotional eating, but, but tie it into this uh, other area that you talk about in the book, the one of our body's biological responses to food also affecting our long-term mood, but but it's inflammation. And there are foods that impact inflammation that in turn can harm our mental health. And I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about that part of the book and that element of research that you did to to show that. Sure. Well, this is the the impact of inflammation is another thing that you've probably heard about increasingly over the past two decades. And one of the big reasons for that is that there is something called the blood brain barrier. And it was thought that the blood, it's a, it's a barrier between your, the circulating blood in your body and your brain. And it was thought that 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 barrier was impenetrable and it, that it existed to protect the brain from any kind of pro- problems we had in our blood, any kind of like bad things we have circulating in our blood. And one of those things is that when inflammation happens anywhere in your body, there are inflammatory compounds that are released into your bloodstream. And so, you know, 30 years ago, we thought, oh, well, it's completely protected. The brain is completely protected from those kinds of inflammatory compounds. Incorrect. The blood-brain barrier is not impenetrable. It's semi-permeable. And very small molecules can pass through that barrier. We thought that it was a solid barrier. It's actually just a very, very tight collection of cells 
linked together. And so if you have a small molecule like an inflammatory compound, it can pass through the blood-brain barrier and get to the brain and cause cause emotional well-being problems in your brain. And so that's a really new, interesting place of study. Now, we think of inflammation as our immune system activated. So anything, if you cut your finger and and the area swells and gets red and that's inflammation and that's a good kind of inflammation. But what some foods can do is cause chronic inflammation. And the most research about that um, and the most widely applicable, you know, there are some people who have food allergies and that is an inflammatory reaction. And so I'm not talking about food allergies. I'm talking about generally applicable to people. The biggest problem is ultra processed foods. And ultra-processed foods are those things that, you know, they don't resemble anything in nature at all. Um, Think about things that you keep on the shelf for a really long time, you know, the uh, chips, um, uh, highly processed industrial breads. That's my dog. She's, she loves Mm -hmm. the chips. She wants me to keep them in the house. She's like, don't get rid of the chips. Um, so it's those kinds of things that's, that studies show that we have that, that cause inflammation in our bodies because our bodies will see some of the ingredients sort of such as industrial oils, like mass produced oils as harmful to our body. It'll recognize that and it'll cause inflammation to try to fix that. And then that inflammation in turn, I mean, it can cause general health problems, but it can also cause emotional well-being problems. So that's, that's, this research is just getting started. We're just at the beginning of it. Um, but every single researcher I spoke to said, look, we don't know all of the mechanisms yet, but we know that food is incredibly influential over our emotional well-being. So in our lifetimes, in my lifetime, in your lifetime, in my son's lifetime, we're not going to know everything about the mechanisms of the human brain. But we do know about the effects that food have on our emotional well-being. And to me, having that knowledge and not using it and not putting it out into the world would be really tragic because right now we are in a mental health crisis. And um, this is not, and you know, I'm not saying throw away your medication, you know, cancel your talk therapy appointments. This is a tool in our toolbox and we need as many tools as possible right now. And particularly one that we use several times a day, right? I mean, you eat at least a couple times a day, some of us eat more often than that, but um, don't judge me. Um, but you know, it's it's, uh, it, it's 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 a really important tool, and you know, the science is is not getting out there enough, and so that's why I wrote the book. The other quote in the book that I, I like so much is you say uh, you, you talk about ultra processed foods, and you say the neurons that fire together wire together, meaning that when you associate a food or activity with a feeling, you're creating an association that continues getting stronger the more you do it. We create our own comfort foods every day. Maybe tell our audience, just as a, as a final question to you, to tell our audience a little bit about a habit or two that you'd recommend, uh, especially about food and activity. Sure. And and sometimes when I'm struggling with my own emotional well-being, it can be hard to say like, Oh, I'm not going, I'm going to have a salad instead of, you know, whatever food that I want. So I think it's also important to talk about, um, tips that don't necessarily involve changing what you eat. 
So a lot of this neurogastronomy that I that I talk about in the book shows how you can increase your food pleasure if you don't even change what you eat. And increasing food pleasure will will probably lead to not needing as much food to be satisfied. Now, um, one of the things that is um, well documented is that if you give a person the the same meal. Um, any kind of a meal, and the person eats it with disposable cutlery, you know, plastic, flimsy cutlery, versus eating that same, the exact same meal with heavy, high quality cutlery, the person will rate the, the meal that they ate with high quality cutlery as significantly higher hmm. quality than the exact same hmm. meal eating, eaten with plastic wow. cutlery. So I never eat with plastic yeah, yeah. cutlery anymore. I keep, I mean, there are other reasons to not do that right. But I always, but I always keep regular cutlery at my desk. Um, I bought, I invested in new cutlery when I, um, when I wrote the book, when I read the science. So even just like a small thing like that, or if you are, um, if, if you, another great thing, uh, research was if you're drinking whiskey and you listen to it with sounds of birds chirping, the whiskey will taste grassier. If you drink that same whiskey with an audio of a fireplace going, it will taste smokier. And I bring that up just to give you an idea of how influential our senses are over what we, uh, over how we create flavor in our brain, because the flavor is not just in our tongue and it's not just in what we smell either. It's in the entire experience of eating. Um, so I would also say, um, use that heavy cutlery and then incorporate a fermented food into your diet, whether that's yogurt, whether that is fermented vegetables, because that will give you, um, that will give you good uh, bacteria going through your, your digestive system. And if you can eat a lot of fiber with it, because that will feed the bacteria and help them to stay in your digestive system. Wow. Such great information, so many wonderful tips, and so much more in the book, and so much more yet at Mary Beth Albright's upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. Again, we will put links so that all of our audience can find out about Mary Beth Albright and her wonderful new book, Eat and Flourish. Mary Beth Albright, thanks for talking to us today, and thanks for all of your work. Congratulations on this uh, on this wonderful book and uh, all the work you do on health and science, food, travel. Um, as you'd like to say, all the things that make life good. <laughs> so thanks to you and your dog <laughs> and for everything. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Zelda is sitting right here and she is waiting for her own dinner. Good. So I, and I thank you for the time because um, Smithsonian Associates is really close to my heart. It's such a great uh, program and I can't wait to talk more about this. So if you have questions about anything that I've talked about, come and join the program. Oh, perfect. Perfect. My thanks to author and Smithsonian associate Mary Beth Albright and her new book, Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Well-Being. Thanks, Mary Beth, for reading today. Mary Beth Albright will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. So please check out our show notes today for more details about Mary Beth Albright at Smithsonian Associates. My thanks, of course, always to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience on radio and podcast. Please be well and be safe, which I'm mentioning in every show because I want to bring attention to the issue of assault rifles, which aren't safe in anyone's hands but the military and law enforcement. Assault rifles are killing our children and grandchildren in the very places they learn, schools. Please, 
Let's work together to eliminate assault rifles, and let's do better. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast Smithsonian Associates author interview series. Thanks, everybody, and we will see you next week.